Hi, everybody. I'm so excited to be here with you today. Uh, I am Farm Girl, and today, for the very first time, I am bringing you Talk Farm to Me's Five Live. And this is where we get to ask five questions of an awesome farmer. I am just about to invite our good friend, Joe Evans of Evans and Evans Farm, to join us four five questions and to learn all about what he does. Joe Evans is a sheep farmer and he is in Andes, New York. How are you today? Very well, thank you. How are it's, you? It's great to see you. I'm great. I'm glad we did our little test run because now I know a lot more about Instagram Live. Um, and I'm glad that we made it work. We've got some folks here um, with us already, and I gave a little intro, and I did. I was just telling everybody that um, you are already on Talk Farm to Me with a very in-depth interview with you and with Jackie, Mrs. Sheep Farmer, and you can find it wherever you find your podcast, Talk Farm to Me. It's episode four of season one, and lots of great stuff there, but we're going to cover some different things today. And um, we're going to start out by hearing a little bit from Joe about his farm. And you guys should all follow him on Instagram at Evans and Evans Farm. And um, you can find me here, obviously, at XOXO Farm Girl and everything about the podcast at Talk Farm to Me. I should also mention that if you have a question, a burning question, go ahead and type it into the comments there at the bottom. I will see it. And um, We'll get it. We'll get it over to Joe. All right, Joe. So tell us about Evans and Evans Farm. Well, first of all, thank you for inviting me to the uh, the first ever edition of Five Live. That's a real honor. You're a brave uh, man. Yeah, I think I am. Can you um, just tell me is is the sound coming through? Is the visual? Because I have no idea. Uh, I can it... hear you great. Um, if you guys can hear out there, maybe give a little thumbs up or a heart or something like that. If you can figure out how to do that at the bottom there. Right. So I am um, one half, only one half of uh, Evans and Evans Farm. Um, my wife and I started this business in 2008. We had a little hard scrabble 17 acre farm in Putnam County, which is uh, just north of New York City two counties north just north of westchester county which is a more famous county i suppose and we started with four sheep in 2008 we really didn't have grand ambitions uh, we had and we still have a small business uh, which is involved in the very strange world of canada goose control humane canada goose control and we use border collies and the farm started really because we just needed sheep to train our border collies to keep them sharp um, and keep them uh, highly obedient because we do our work in schools and public parks and places where you have to have dogs that can stop 500 yards away and come back. So we started with those four sheep, um, but we thought this was quite good fun. So we bought, I don't know, I think it was 14 more, and then uh, we bought another 20 a couple of years later. And we used other people's land because our 17 acres were so woefully poor that uh, there's no way you could have uh, fattened sheep. And we decided right from the outset that we wanted to involve ourselves in a field which didn't have a name. Well, it did have a name then. It was one of several silly names like sustainable agriculture or um, uh, rotational grazing agriculture or, you know, 
the worst one I think was um, multi paddock adaptive livestock grazing agriculture, which uh, you know some university out west invented that name. But we wanted to just do simple. 100% grass-fed, grass-finished farming using no grain, no funny cake, as we call it in Wales, which is a food made out of God knows what. Um, very good for fattening sheep, but um, you know, not the healthiest stuff in the world. In my opinion, I might be wrong on that, but certainly not the healthiest stuff as I see it. So grass and forage, that's what these animals were designed to, to thrive on. Um, so that's what we, we set out to do. Um, and by the time we got to a fairly sizable number and we had lambs to sell, we were pretty successful. Jackie was a great salesperson, very calm, um, not pushy, but she was great in farmers markets. And um, so we built up a fairly decent uh, head of steam. But we felt we needed one world famous restaurant from New York or the New York environment to, um, to help us out effectively and give us um, uh, an entree and a reputation and we happen to live relatively close to Blue Hill at Stone Barn, Barnes which is Dan Barber's restaurant uh, it is now that is one of the most world famous um, real foodie restaurants and our lovely daughter had uh, has a very close friend who happened to get a job there as the sous, sous pastry chef making desserts she was very talented she got us an, an entree, hold on, um, to the, the place. And we went down and rather stupidly spent a hideous amount of money for a, like a 17 course meal, which actually turned into about a 30 course meal. And that 30 course meal came with a, 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 a taste of wine, which of course was a glass of wine for every course. So we were completely slaughtered by the end and the chef would recognize that they weren't impressed. So we did some uh, some thought gave some thought to the matter and the problem and we decided that uh, using other people's land and we were farming by this stage about 200 acres but we didn't control those 200 acres so as a result of the the rather embarrassing painstaking and very expensive because we had to pay for that meal so we uh, decided we were going to buy a farm and we hunted around and uh, we ended up uh, looking at a place called Andes in on the western end of the Catskills a beautiful area and uh, we bought a hundred acre farm and moved in in 2014 and we've been here ever since and we did carry on working really working very hard and researching what this hundred percent grass fed and grass finished explanation meant and what we found is which is sort of what we knew but you have to move them every day you have to move the sheep every day in in the growing season but it's not as simple as that you have to get the forage at the right height, can't be too tall, too lignified, too much uh, stem, in other words, because they don't do well on that. They don't, they don't fatten well on that. And they find it stressful. And it certainly can't be too short um, and grazed too recently because you'll pick up parasites. And also, again, the nutritional value isn't there because you're grazing the bottom of the, the, the stems. And even worse, you are eating into the roots um, and, and damaging the quality of the plants. So... But in amongst all this, this experimentation, we got a call from this gentleman that we didn't know called Andrew Tarlow from Brooklyn, who has five restaurants and a, a really wonderful old fashioned butcher shop called Marlow and Daughters. And the restaurants are Marlow and Sons, Romans, Achilles Heel and a, a Diner. Oh, I've been to those restaurants in Brooklyn. They're they're fantastic. Right. And uh, and they 
he was sort of a pioneer in the uh, local food and quality food sustainably raised in that in that movement he that was in 2015 and he committed to buy without so much as a piece of paper or anything else he committed to buy four animals every two weeks and um throughout the year and we have been shipping down that amount and more um so no, we're now sending down around anywhere between 120 and 140 animals then he buys them whole um we have to have them slaughtered at a usda facility up here and down they go feet off skin off and guts out because you're not allowed to sell animals with the intestines in in this country we're getting real here <laughs> we are um sorry about that but that is farm talk i suppose no that's great i um, think you've already answered one of the questions that's come um come across from some of our viewers about um how you sell your animals so it's whole animal butchery and then andrew tarlow and his group they are all they're all using you know every single part of the animal that that they can Exactly. And then we also found that a, a, a few restaurants up here were buying the same way. And, uh, you know, chefs that had migrated from the city uh, with tiny little knives were, were butchering, cutting up our whole animals. Um, so it, and, and it's created a, a viable market. And um, to the extent where we now have, you know, we're, we're, we own the 100 acres, but we rent and borrow in total about 300 acres uh, in, of, of all within the, the little valley in which we live. That's fantastic. Now, I mean, you confess to uh, another career of uh, humanely removing geese from parks and fields, etc. But you also have a, quite a long career. Uh, and so does your wife from, uh, it's, you know, would I think consider you guys uh, kind of city slickers, real uh, urban dwellers who are working in, you know, big office buildings. And I'm wondering with everyone who's listening here, I know they're not all farmers and there are a bunch of city slickers out there who are thinking about how that rat race is going for them. And I'm wondering if you have any advice for, you know, for folks out there since you were uh, a city slicker and now you're, you know, a real farmer doing farmer talk here with us. Well, city slickers have to do what city slickers do best, which is to uh, consult Uncle Google and uh, just Google the heck out of whatever it is you want to do. <laughs> how to raise a sheep? How to raise sheep if you want to raise sheep. And I would say that sheep is an interesting market because in 1943, there were 40 million sheep in this country. And now we're down to around five, between five and six million. Why uh, is that? Um, because it was essentially a wool business. Um, and wool became very unfashionable once those awful man-made fibers came into being. And if hmm. you want plastic shirts, you know, that got rid of the lovely wool shirts and to a lesser extent, cotton and linen. Um, yeah, there's an impact to every single thing in, that we do and every single choice. I mean, you just don't realize um, if you're not thinking about sheep all the time, you know, what the impact is to the farming industry. Right, and also the other big factor was um, in World War II, um, the GIs, uh, well, the, all the overseas forces, particularly in the Pacific theater, were fed a nonstop diet of, of uh, what do they call those military meals, ready-made meals type thing, you know, the sort of original processed food almost. Um, and it was, it was uh, supposed to be lamb, but it was rancid mutton from Australia because of course they didn't have very good refrigerators. <laughs> Most of those GIs came back 
to their families um, and just said, never again, I will never eat lamb in my life again. And even that, that prejudice, a quite understandable prejudice, um, moved on to the generation below them. So is it below or above? The, so there was that prejudice against lamb, but this generation now of foodies really do love lamb. So there is a, a captive market uh, and a vibrant market there. Um, you just have to learn how to raise sheep. So in answer to your question, I you know get mentors, and I don't have a single live mentor, but I have this person, Nicolette Hahn Nyman, who wrote this incredible book, Defending Beef. Uh, she's a, a vegetarian environmental lawyer, but she is turned into a married a rancher and really gets to understand and gets readers to understand what benefits um, responsible grazing and well-managed grazing can bring to the soil, to plants and to the environment. Great. I will, um, I will include the names of these books in the notes after, um, after, our, after our interview here. Fred Provenza is another genius in this field. Um, he's written a book on uh, how to move sheep, how sheep are moved through the Alp, Alps um, and uh, that, how they take multiple types of forages to their benefit. And the latest, a really important book, which you know, I, I think this will ex help explain to people. Um, this is Sacred Cow by uh, Diana Rogers and Rob Wolf. Who's, Rob Wolf is a New York Times journalist, and um, Diana Wolf is a registered dietitian, and, and that book is just dynamite. So, thank you for those recommendations. I think that um, if you guys are out there and you're thinking about being a farmer, that is definitely a place to start. Um, I think you've already um, garnered some interest from our. Uh, our followers here about whether they can buy direct from your farm or not. They can. Uh, we actually do um, slaughter animals at, again at a USDA facility for ourselves. Um, we have them uh, put into cuts, which are the most popular cuts, and uh, we keep them on a freezer. So in a freezer, well, several freezers here actually. So you just need to go to our website or our Instagram account and call us up. It's sort of sort of like by appointment only. We're in such a remote area. It's not as if we could have a farm open all the time, a farm store, I should say. Okay, so Evans and Evans Farm, you want to make sure you follow them and you can reach out to them on DM. On the, on the bookends of uh, your experience as a farmer, I'm curious to understand, you know, sort of the, what's the best part of farming and what's the worst? Help me out with those bookends. The best part is, is most definitely, and the type of farming we do, is uh, cool summer days, lovely autumn days, where the grass is 12 inches high in the paddock you're going into and four inches high in the paddock they're coming out of. And you move them and you just look at their full rumens and uh, they're chewing the cud and they are happy, content animals. That is bliss to a grass, 100% grass-fed and finished farmer. The downside of farming is, uh, you know, I, there's one of these cliched phrases which uh, livestock farmers have, uh, with, with, but it has too large an element of truth, which is where there's livestock, there's dead stock. Dealing with death, um, we, we had our first animal killed by a coyote today. Um, oh, no. Because sorry. Uh, somebody in a field which we haven't used uh, because it's at the top end of the farm and we've had deep snow for quite a while somebody opened a gate left it open and uh, we found the tracks we, we took the track this morning from where the uh, the, the animal had been uh, killed and hasn't hasn't finished eating it by any stretch of the imagination because uh, we disturbed that so mm. that's the hard side that's the hard part of it is dealing with that 
That is sad. Gosh. And it's, it's always shocking too, right? When you can trace kind of what happened and to see if it was preventable or not, but there are, I mean, there's wildlife out there and I'm sure they're keeping an eye on you. They certainly are. And sorry, that's down to 10% now. So Jackie is going to have to bring this in. So unless okay. you've got, uh, I don't know, hold on. Let me just, I have to no. uh, fiddle around. No with problem. It. Everybody out there, if you're following right now, start thinking about your questions. We've got a few um, other questions here um, to get through. And um, again, you can uh, make sure that you're um, keeping in touch with Joe on um, through his Instagram account. Um, He's got a great accent and that doesn't come through on um, over Instagram, but for sure he's very witty and I enjoy the heck out of following what he and Mrs. Sheep Farmer are doing. So that's your commercial break. All right, so gosh, wow, best and worst, that's a lot. I'm curious, especially now there's, you know, there's sort of a transition with our federal government and there's been a lot of talk about farming on the government stage and and what farmers really want from government or what they don't want and i'm wondering if there is a way and this is um this is a question from one of our followers and uh, she submitted it beforehand which is a, a great way to you know think about your questions and get them to me before we get started so we can really um you know get these questions in there but like how can the government be more supportive of farmers and of the kind of work that you're doing when you're talking about regenerative agriculture? That's a very difficult question and I'm not really sure how to answer it. Other than uh, the, the government has a sort of undeclared agricultural policy, which is a disaster um, because it flows very rapidly or floods into the health arena because the the government has supported or promoted since the the 60s an incredibly unhealthy food system that's based upon fructose corn syrup processed food ready-made meals um, very cheap food so i would say just get out of that stop subsidizing corn and soy and those massive monoculture crops that are spread right across the country because they're a health disaster and they're an, they're an agricultural and an environmental disaster. So, and meat in the meantime has been severely vilified and unfairly vilified as being the villain of the piece, but it's not. Sugar is the villain of the piece. That's why we have an epidemic of obesity, early onset diabetes, um, heart disease, strokes, et cetera, et cetera. So I would say stop subsidizing that farming get people to go back to a more environmentally and healthy way of farming which is not just to have one crop as your sole source which by the way is a disaster very often for the poor people who've fallen into that trap because everybody vilifies them too but you know what they're just trying to earn a living and to do that they basically have to not hire any staff because they can't afford the minimum wage so they then have to spend every penny that they don't have because they get it all from the banks uh, on buying massive equipment which you know can harvest these thousands of acres that they very often own of um of corn and soy so that that would be my primary uh, piece of advice it would be nice for farmers to be rewarded for environmentally sound practices new york city goes some way towards doing that up here in the catskills because 
I think it's 80, 90% of New York City's water comes from the Western Catskills here. And so they do their very best to keep the, the water pristine and clear because it's not filtered. It's one of the only major cities in, in, in America where it's not filtered. So there, it can be done, but I, you know, carbon sequestration, we've talked about off this podcast, off this, uh, this publication here. What, what, what do we call it? I don't know, this Five Live. <laughs> Um, <laughs> it's too early yet um, to to say how could that be done. My fear, if if uh, if farming were to, if farmers or ranchers were to be rewarded, as happens now, the money would go to the the big ones who don't really uh, farm responsibly um, because they can't afford to. So you know that's a slippery slope. So possibly, uh, you know. The statistic I always give, I think I gave it to you last time, is that um, in 1900, 40% of the people in this country worked on farms, lived or worked on farms, and they spent 40% of their disposable income on food. Now, 2% live and work on farms, and actually it's declining. And that uh, the, the average percentage of disposable in income spent on food is around 17% now. So, but people are very happy to spend money on things which aren't needed. Food is a, it's absolutely vital to sustain life. Yeah, I have heard that a lot. I think that you've touched on some really important um, things and I hope everybody's gonna give this a little bit of thought when uh, Joe was talking about how, you know, farmers really need to, especially small scale farmers have a hard time keeping up especially when it comes to equipment, a lot of like the modernization and when you're dealing with grain over grass, um, there's a huge infrastructure um, investment and um, a lot of small farms of all kinds are, are really going out of business. I'm doing a series coming up um, and the first um, episode will be released next week on the dairy industry. And boy, oh boy, have dairy farmers taken a real, taken a real hit, especially the smaller ones from just what you're talking about. Oh, and next week, we are going to meet right here on Five Live, dairy farmer from Clark Dairy Farms, Kyle Clark. So Kyle, if you're out there, hey, we'll see you uh, this time next week. Joe, help me out here. I, I guess I just wonder when you walk the street and you say the word farmer and ask someone to do word association or whatever it is, I'm curious, what your perspective is on misconceptions about farmers, and if you could pick one in particular and change it, what, what would it be? I really do not have a clue how to answer that. That's the most difficult question I've been asked because there are so many views on what a farmer is and what a farmer isn't. And really the only people who know that are farmers. And as I said, you know, 2% of the population work on farms. So it's probably only one, maybe one and a half percent. But as I mentioned with, with regard to people think about big ag, very often they are just family farms. They've just, you know, been forced to expand. They were all, first of all, they were blessed with living on and, and working on, on really healthy soils. And this country is really blessed with that, uh, as is Russia and Poland too, and to a lesser extent France and Britain. It's, it's not easy to say, uh, you know, what, what misconceptions would I like to have addressed other than farmers aren't out to poison people. They're not out to hurt. 
they're just doing their best. In my own humble opinion, barking up the wrong tree or, or driving down the wrong street with the type of farming that, that uh, they're doing, which I've covered. But, you know, that's not their fault. It's really um, the fault of the government. Uh, I, I hate to say that because I'm not an anti-government person, but they made disastrous decisions and followed some very bad science. And they're still doing it because the World Health Organization, I think we mentioned this in, in the podcast uh, years ago, but they've, they've put out some really, really bad scientific papers and recognize that they're bad and apologize for them, um, vilifying meat. I would really get people to try and understand farmers aren't bad people and uh, we're all just trying to produce food in the best way we know. One of the, one of the things that you told me in our last interview was, um, I'm going to read a quote from... Um, of, of what you said, you said very, very few people, probably no more than two to 3% really understand the difference between sheep or cattle that are grazed rotationally, which you've talked about um, today, and don't need grain and don't need corn, which you've also talked about, that do benefit the soil tremendously through depositing manure, et cetera. And one of the things that I, and I, I think this is a pretty big question, and I think it's something that people hear about regenerative agriculture and carbon sequestration and what the heck is that? Where is the carbon? Where are you sequestering it? And, and just enlighten us on, uh, on, on this big issue and, and your contribution. So carbon uh, can be sequestered in many forms. Um, much of it obviously was sequestered uh, eons ago. Dinosaurs were wandering around. Huge forests got buried under permafrost. I think the carbon that is CO2 being absorbed from the air, from the atmosphere, by the process of photosynthesis. So that means in simple terms that um, plants, grasses, forbs, legumes, which is a fancy word for vegetables, and trees, they pluck that CO2 from the air and they take it down into their roots and deposit carbon. Now, that's where the interesting stuff happens and that's where there's just science on it yet. I mean, it's starting, it's, but it's really sort of 10, 15 years old at best um, and not enough is into it. But huge, vitally important slice of life down there in in the soil underneath the the plants and that's that they play a, an incredibly important part in storing carbon if you plow those fields the carbon is released so we don't plow um we just graze and the act of grazing the way that we graze we are told is tremendously beneficial because it increases the plant density it increases the number of plants and therefore increases the microbial activity under the soil, which has a very, very positive effect. And because we don't disturb that soil, the carbon stays there. So the argument that some people are making is that uh, we should be rewarded for that, farmers who do that. But I shudder to think how the government would even begin to that. I mean, you can measure carbon. The science is so new that even the people doing it say it's too hard to do yet hopefully we'll be able to dive into that a little bit um in um maybe in some future deep dive episodes because it's really fascinating and i mean i think 
Uh, there have been a lot of really great comments coming through with a lot of thumbs up and farmers are the hardest workers out there. I know for sure that you and Jackie work super, super hard at your farm and super impressive with your, how many sheep? 357 yeah. sheep as of today. We lost one and so yeah. such a bummer. But you're also uh, a grass farmer. Uh, you're sequestering carbon. You've got cattle and chickens laying some really incredible eggs out there um, on your farm, which is a, a beautiful place. I was scrolling through your Instagram <laughs> yesterday. I did see some uh, folks making some comments, maybe from from Wales. And they're, it's, yeah. is that Welsh? Is that what they're writing to you in? They are writing to me. Well, uh, I'm legally schizophrenic because I'm half English and half Welsh. In Wales and um, taught Welsh subjects from the age of three and a half to seven or six and a half actually um, in Welsh. So I still speak Welsh, but at, at a, um, the level of a six-year-old. So it's really rather oh, embarrassing when I go and have adult conversation. <laughs> well, I was going to say nearly all my Welsh relatives were or are still um, sheep farmers, uh, or I should say sheep cattle and a few chickens and well so it's in um, your blood also, i guess it is in my blood and the english side actually they dropped out of polite society they were far more um when the welsh side of my family and uh th that paid for me to go to an english school to from the age of seven onwards or two english schools to sound like an englishman um and act like an englishman i suppose but i am welsh and the welsh side of my family lived on a a, a re actually one one my cousin uh, still lives there. Um, a wonderful but very, very hard farm to and living on um, called Kumkinwal in uh, Carmarthenshire. And um, the, my grandfather and grandmother on that farm had six kids. But this is a bit personal, but it really does tell the story of farming. And it's still a story which needs to be absorbed today. Is that um, my grandfather was not a very good farmer. And he also drank way too much and had psychological problems. And he basically lost the farm to the bank, couldn't pay the loans, and he inherited the farm, so I don't know why he had bank money. And he died at a young age of, uh, of well, it, the, people don't talk about what he died of, but he died at a pretty young age. The amazing thing is that next door, my great uncle, Jaw Maur, which is big, big Joe, who's fat for those days and tall, most Welsh people are very short, he farmed in a completely different way. Uh, for those people who are interested in, you know, how to earn a living from farming, don't, whatever you do, in my opinion, get into the commodity-based uh, market. You don't control the price, you control the product, but it's, you, you know, you, when you don't control the price and you don't control who you sell to, you don't really have a business, in my opinion. Uh, obviously, a lot of people have succeeded and will continue to succeed. It's just, I don't think it's a viable option for people coming into the business. And they, they, they had milk in those days. They, they, they sold milk, but a tiny amount of it. They only had each farm would have about 12 dairy cows and a sheep and a bunch of chickens. And my uncle, Joe Maur, from the farm next door, his sister married the, the guy who lost the farm. So he had a vested interest and the, the two farmers were joining. But he learned from a very early age, learned from his mother, who was called on, on the, um, the census, She's actually, her profession is listed as Huckster 
which is sort of like a dirty word for grubby salesperson, isn't it? Uh, you know, a hucksterish oh person is not good. And then what her son, Uncle Joe Maur, my great uncle, con continued to do was to go buy eggs and um, chickens and butter off local farmers, and they produced their own as well. And he would get into his pony and trap, ride to the nearest village where they had a, a very sporadic train service. He would take the train with, armed with uh, all of these eggs, butter, and chickens. And he would go down to the nearest major uh, town, a place called Swansea, and he would sell those at a profit. Through doing that, he earned enough money to buy back the farm that his brother-in-law had bankrupted. And he put my first uncle, Uncle Will, at the age of 17, I think he was, on the farm. It became essentially, but he, he, it's like an indentured service. He saved that farm through selling, farm to market. There's got to be a moral there somewhere, hasn't there? I think so. <laughs> Huckster's working hard. That's a good line. So I just wanted to go back quickly to some of the comments I saw. Is it true that you're a singer? <laughs> I tell the truth. I, I, you better ask Jackie. Jackie, can I sing? I don't know. She says yes, but uh, let's I don't hear a sing. little bit. You can sing uh, in Welsh. It doesn't have to be anything I know. I'll do a the schizophrenic song then, half English, half Welsh for you. Um, oh, excellent! Do it. It's sort of appropriate. When I was young and in my prime, my face would smile any time. Now I'm old and getting grey, my face can't smile but once a day. Here's the Welsh bit. Rhein and Garth Golow, Roydy Vim and Tenor, Roydy Vim and Tau. Dimag Blowin Garo, Fiesain Pititer Hon and Maru. Bravo! <laughs> that was beautiful. I loved it. Jackie's right. You're a very good singer. Before we wrap up here, I wanted to ask you one more question, a little on the silly side. What's your go-to, a cookie or a cocktail? And which one? Uh, cocktail, probably gin and tonic. And there's a really gin good local gin manufacturer. Um, Tell me. Called Isolation Roof Gin. And it's uh, the, the man is called Jacob Sherry. What's the, well, what's all the, he calls the distiller. My mind has gone blank on the name distillery. But if you look for is isolation proof gin from Bogle, just over the hill from here, it's incredible stuff. I'm going to look for it. Stay tuned because I'm going to make a gin and tonic in your honor. Thank you for sharing all of this great information. I hope those of you who are following here today I had a great time. Thank you for all the thumbs up and all of the great questions. You'll be able to find this interview and share it with others or review it. You'll find it on IGTV on my account, XOXO Farm Girl, and also on Talk Farm to Me. Don't forget to follow Joe at Evans and Evans Farm. Stay in touch. If you need some lamb, he's the guy to go to. So I just, I'm really grateful for everybody being here. You'll be able to find more of uh, Joe, and you'll get to hear how a lamb is born from Jackie if you go to the Talk Farm to Me podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And we will see you next week at this exact same time, 12 noon on Thursday. Uh, we'll be meeting with Kyle Clark of Clark Dairy Farms, 
and I'm really excited about that. Joe, you were an amazing first guest and I'm super grateful and really great to see you. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. It's been a lot of fun.